Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast. My name is Lena Norms. This week we have a tremendously exciting episode. We are delving into the strange and wonderful world of animals. Now, later in the episode, we're going to be talking to Peter Volleben, the man who famously spent 20 years of his life working for the Forestry Commission and wrote the international bestseller, The Hidden Life of Trees, is now here to show us behind the curtain of the animal kingdom. Of course, we know from Bambi that deers are capable of grieving, but did you know that horses feel shame? That bees plan for the future, magpies commit adultery, and pigs learn their own names. Later in the episode, I'm going to be probing Peter about this fascinating side to animal psychology. But before that, we're going to be hearing from Stephen Moss. Here is a reading from his new book, The Robin. The Robin, a biography. Britain's favourite bird. As I write these words, a little bird comes to the open door of my back garden office. Hopping towards me, he cocks his head to one side, as if checking me out. Then he flies up into a nearby elder and moments later, begins to pour out his delicate, tuneful song, full of nuance and pathos. On this late autumn afternoon, when all is quiet in the natural world, this sight and sound fills me with an unexpected rush of joy and delight. The bird is, of course, a robin. How could it be anything else? No other bird is quite so confident or approachable, and no other species sings so regularly at this time of year, as the nights are rapidly drawing in and we prepare for the winter season to come. From deep in our childhood memories we recall the robin's image on a million Christmas cards, the pert, plump, red-breasted bird that is much a part of the festive season as mince pies or presents piled up beneath the tree. Now, and indeed throughout the winter, the robin is a constant presence outside our kitchen window, inclining its head to one side, as if nagging us to restock the bird table, to make sure it gets enough to eat. I talk about my robin, but the chances are that this is not the bird I heard singing back on New Year's Day. Robins rarely live longer than a year or two, and so this songster is quite likely to be the son of that original bird, or perhaps an interloper from another garden nearby. My aunt, who has fed robins in the same Sussex garden for almost 60 years, dismisses this notion as stuff and nonsense. She claims that the same bird has been coming to her window ledge for at least ten years, and no amount of urging on my part will convince her otherwise. Nor am I allowed to mention that other inconvenient truth about robins, that of all our garden birds they are the most aggressive and violent, sometimes fighting rival males to the death. Like other devotees of the robin, she hears this, but resolutely chooses to ignore it exciting stuff now we're going to be talking to Stephen later in the episode about his fascination with robins but first back to peter the man who told us that trees have mood swings now returns to our bookshelves with fascinating claims about crows who go tobogganing and a story about a grateful humpback whale i was honored to meet peter and pick his brains about this fascinating new research 
So, Peter, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Um, I found your book really interesting, and particularly it made me think about things in my life about um, being a child and being encouraged to personify uh, an animal and, and give them a character and a personality and get attached to them, and then being pushed into adulthood and having to feel very distant from animals and very um, kind of estranged and, and having to t treat them with reverence and science and serious things like that. Um, can you talk to us about your own experience with, with animals as a child and as an adult? Because you talk a little bit about that in the book, but I thought that was really um, interesting. Yeah, my, my relationship to animals is much uh, stronger or lasts much longer than, than to trees. To trees, I, um, I came uh, uh, until I became a forester, the first, the first real touch, but with animals, I I'm in touch since I was a little child. I kept spiders in glasses or turtles, uh, water turtles in an aquarium and watched them. And uh, I, um, I um, bred a, a chicken from, from a, out of um, a heating pillow from my, my grandma and I, have to control the, I had to control the temperature. And, and I managed to get it out of, of the egg and uh, it, it regarded me as uh, its mother. But that, what, that was really, really hard for me because for the first days that was really funny. And then afterwards, uh, because the, this, this little chicken wants, wants always to be with me and on, on the, in the restrooms, in bed, in, in school. <laughs> you and didn't know what you got yourself no, in no, for. <laughs> always beep, 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 beep. And um, yeah, and then um, afterwards my brother uh, took care of, of this, this little Robin Robin Hood as we we uh, called it <laughs> because it was with, without it. anyone <laughs> did it rob the rich to give to the poor <laughs> yeah, okay. not quite that's what not, you're raising not really. it for <laughs> then afterwards my, my English teacher um, took care and, and kept it and uh, walked walked together on, on the shoulder with, with this hen as, mm. it, as it was when it was grown up yeah what, what I've, I've always experienced that uh, animals are much more like like uh, bio robots or something like a biological computer with a programmed genetical code. No, no, they, they have character and they have personality, each of them. Mm. And wh why do you think it is that we don't know as much about them? Because obviously part of the reason you're writing this book is that you're saying this scientific research is out there. It's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for us all to understand or it doesn't circulate properly. What, why do you think that is? What what made you discover so much about this? Well, I think uh, there is much knowledge, but uh, out. But for example, uh, everyone who has a dog or a cat knows that it's, it's something like a family member, and mm. that it's much more than than just instincts. But uh, uh, when we when we use animals for meat production, for example, or other things, uh, then it's it's just something like raw material. And that view on nature is as old as two or three hundred years since mm. uh, the age of enlightenment. We regarded nature like a big machine, and just humans are uh, able to feel pain and and uh, happiness and love and things like that. And all other living beings are working like big machines. And for example, uh, scientists have uh, regarded dogs. They cut them open while living, and when when the dogs began to scream, they just said, "Ah, that's like a machine which needs oil." And that's uh, that was really serious. Uh, the thoughts of this time and. And think uh, many people are kept in in those thoughts. And nowadays we realize more and more: no, nature is is not working like this. And we are not the only ones who have uh, emotions and uh, and thoughts about our life. No, we are surrounded by personalities and characters. Mm. Can you give us some more examples of that? Because I, one of the ones that I found really interesting was this idea of maternal love, because we think of that yeah. as a very human characteristic. Yeah. But actually, really, it's it's much more of an instinct, isn't it? It's something. 
that we do automatically. Yeah, um, uh, we, we always regard instincts less worse than uh, things um, based on mind. But the most important things in our life are based on instincts uh, because they are based on emotions. The emotions are the language of instincts. Emotions are just good to, to trigger instincts. And one of uh, these emotions is love. Love is caused, like all um, emotions, by hormones. Hormones like oxytocin. This oxytocin you can find not just on, on uh, humans, you can find this also on, in, in goats, in horses, and even in goldfish. We don't know so far what it what it makes in goldfish, <laughs> perhaps also some, something <laughs> like love. But so we share this this feeling with uh, with animals, which uh, have the same evolutionary way since millions of years with us together. So and and the question is: Is mother love less worth uh, just be just because we share it with the animals? Hmm. How did you go about finding all these stories? Because there's so many of them. There's the um the one about pigeons who can remember things. Yeah, well. how, yeah. how did you dig out all of these? Um, many things I, I observed in my own gar garden around the forest house or in the forest. And uh, I know by by uh, watching this that, that things uh, happen <clears throat> and that they are real. But to write a book about it, I have to have scientific reports because otherwise um, that, that sounds like fairy tales. Um, and uh, so... It's a combination of own observations and scientific reports, which are um, at the end of the book for everyone who wants to read more about it. And um, yeah, so it's it's a good combination of all. Mm, that's amazing. And there's, I think there's a line that you say in it about um, how uh, politicians are often beholden to farmers and, and that way. Yeah. How do you approach that on a political level? Do you think there's something we need to change uh, yeah, systemically about farms and, and the way it interacts with things. <laughs> Usually I, d I don't want to give advices uh, mm. for for how to behave and what to change. Uh, politically seen, yeah, it's it's like um, when, when we d don't, when, when things are not proven, mm. then politi politicians say uh, it doesn't exist. And that's the thought. Uh, um, it, they should say we don't know. For example, if young pigs can feel pain, we know they can feel pain, but for example, in some countries, also in Germany, it's, it's still allowed to cut the tails of, of uh, little pigs uh, without any um, uh, narcotics. Mm -hmm. So they, they feel the pain and the politicians say uh, they don't feel pain. So up to the third day of life, it's allowed to do that without narcotics. So it's crazy. But I think uh, it's better to start with everyone of us um, themselves. For example, uh, we regard some animals less worth than others. Uh, let's uh, have a look at flies. Flies have a little brain, just 250,000 nerve cells. That's really, really just a, a little thing. But uh, in this little brain, there, there uh, are also dreams. Um, flies are moving their legs while dreaming, like we do, like dogs do, or cats, or horses. Uh, even flies are moving their legs while dreaming. And um, bees, for example, are um, known, that's a relatively new research, that they have also an own personality and that they also have something like uh, they, they, they are conscious about themselves and their life. So they are not working like we uh, used to look at, at a beehive like a super organism and that e each every, every bee is something like a nerve cell and just working that, that just when they work together, they are something interesting. No, each... Uh, individual B has a personality, a character, and is, for example, able to uh, um, differ between different 
faces of us. So for example, if you're not nice to a, to a bee and I am nice, so you will be stitched and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very that's very fair enough. I think they've got that. That's fair, yeah. So um, bees can even be fair. <laughs> <laughs> the bee justice system. I, su- I right. support it. What were the, the most surprising things for you that you found out? I think um, it's also one, one thing on, on science. Um, uh, but scientists, for example, uh, said bees are uh, bees. Fish are not able to feel fear. Uh, they really researched the brain of, of the fish, and our center of fear is deep in the brain, one of the deepest layer, because it's so old evolution we're seeing. And they they searched for in, in in the brain of goldfish, for example, and there there were no center of fear, and there's no center of fear. So they they uh, uh, concluded that there that fish are not able to fear fear. And nowadays they know they searched the wrong place. Uh, the center of fear on, in fish is on the top of the brain. Oh wow! Oh, sorry. So <laughs> they were like, uh, "We'll call that, guys." <laughs> sorry, uh, we've massacred uh, thousands of fish. Or another mistake. Mm. Um, um, in former times, uh, scientists thought that uh, intelligence has to work like in our brain, and, and, and it's the, uh, the the most upper layer. It's uh, the neocortex mm. where our mind is, uh, and uh, and every being without a neocortex was regarded to be stupid, like mm. birds. Yeah. Birds are uh, something like dinos- dinosaurs, and they have uh, a brain which is uh, completely uh, constructed uh, in, an, in a different way with nerve knots. And they are, as we know nowadays, uh, connected very efficient, uh, so efficient that this little brain uh, uh, co- uh, causes an intelligence uh, like a chimpanzee. So um, the scientists nowadays say that raven birds are feathered apes. Because they're so so intelligent. Yeah. Uh, for example, ravens have name amongst names amongst each other. Yeah. They know uh, themselves by name. They know um, old friends that they haven't seen for years. Mm. Ravens can can become very old, and when such a friend comes back, uh, that uh, then this friend is greeted in a high voice. And when uh, something this raven uh, couldn't like comes back, uh, this bird is greeted in a deep voice. And mm. that's exactly what we are doing. Yeah, when you when you greet uh, good friends, you greet them in a high voice, and uh, people you don't, uh, which mm. you don't like, you greet in a deep voice. Yeah. So perhaps uh, uh, watch how you are greeted the next time you visit friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like you ravens. <laughs> at least at least they're honest. I like the honesty of ravens. We need yeah the justice of bees and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the honesty yeah. of ravens, um, because they're the ones that also they they have a lot of different words or is it like they almost have a language they have like yeah, 80 they have a, different they have a language so far uh, yeah. uh, um, is, are discovered 80, 80 let's say yeah. words uh, expressions uh, but there are perhaps much much more and uh, what's um, surprising for me is the, the point of view my daughter said uh, when we discussed that, this topic uh, why are scientists are always trying to teach animals the human language Mm. Chimpanzees, uh, tr- uh, they should talk in sign language and or parrots or whatsoever. Uh, um, people are always trying to teach animals the human language or dogs. You, know, you, you talk to them in, in, in uh, human expressions. Mm. And uh, when we are more intelligent than animals, why don't we talk in animal language? Very good point. <laughs> I'm revising everything I knew about training dogs. <laughs> ah. 
So, try biking, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I was going to, you know, one of my my questions, but maybe this is now a naive question. Maybe this is my human privilege speaking. Yeah. But one of my, my questions was going to be, it, will there be a point where, where animals can, can speak? Or, but maybe it's that we, we're really, we've really been lazy and haven't actually uh, learned uh, the animal question, language. The question is, what is language? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's mm. it, there's no definition. You can you can look in in in, uh, in, in the World Wide Web or wherever. There's no uh, no single definition of a language. Mm. Is uh, and when when you say that that is uh, how to make con conversation with uh, with um, sounds mm -hmm. and uh, gesture or or yeah, then then uh, this sort of language uh, animals can do too. For example, when you when you train horses, they see instinctively uh, if you're in a good mood or not, because mm. your body tension is different when you're when you are when you worry about something, and then you're not not a good trainer in this moment, and the horses refuse to work with you. That's <laughs> on our horses, on our two horses. They know instinctively uh, if we are in, in a good good mood mood, and uh, if it is, if if it is a bad day for us, they don't work. Because we are not justice in this moment. <laughs> yeah, we are not, not no good chiefs. And then they refuse. So they can read in, in, in my face. They can read in my body. Uh, and horses, that's a, a relatively new um, um, discovery. They have also a something like a language. Uh, we know nowadays that horses are talking to each other in two different uh, tones, voices mm -hmm. in, in uh, one moment, in a very high voice and a very deep voice at the same time. And uh, if the percentage of, of higher voices is higher, uh, more than the, the deeper voices, then it's a positive expression. And is, if it is vice versa, it's a negative expression. More we don't know so far, but it's uh, we always have 10 new questions when you have answered one. So they're talking amongst themselves they and they can refuse us, yeah. to work with us. Yeah, is there really. going to be a horse's union? <laughs> they're going to assemble <laughs> together. There's going to be perhaps. communist horse <laughs> mentality. Uh, yeah, perhaps they, they realize some situations uh, faster than we do. Mm. Um, when uh, my wife and I, when we train our horses uh, together, the horses recognize uh, earlier than perhaps sometimes I, that, that my wife or I am not, not in, the, in the best uh, condition that day that we should stop training oh. because we are going to be unfair right? because when we worry about something or being angry about whatsoever and then we are going to be unfair to horses or mm. even even to to other people and mm. so the, the horses are the best trainers for this situation and, and even the best trainers to be fair for example to children uh, during education when you, when you educate a horse a horse weights uh, 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 500 kilos and when a horse uh, when you treat a horse unfair a horse is better to to show you uh, what what is good or not than, than the little child so perhaps it's better to train first with horses and they educate you how to be fair and then uh, you can train and then maybe we'll let yeah. you parent uh, then we, we talk about children <laughs> I, I <yeah>. really, <laughs> Stephen Moss to say the least is an expert in his field he's a broadcaster television producer with credits like Spring Watch Birds Britannia and the Nature of Britain and he's recently turned his expert eye to robins. Often tipped the nation's favourite bird, I went to steal some of Stephen's precious time to ask him what is it about the robin that has so warmly permeated our social and cultural history and why, when it comes to what we really know about the robin, we might be a little bit wrong. Stephen, thank you so much for talking to us about your wonderful book. Thank you. <laughs> I was thanking you in advance because I haven't actually made you talk about it yet. Um, but you've written so so broadly about so many um, topics. Why did you choose to really centre in on the on the robin for this one? 
I think for me, the robin's one of those birds that is both alongside us all the time. It's very familiar. It's the second commonest bird in Britain after the wren. We see them almost everywhere. Anywhere you go in Britain, urban places, city of London, countryside, suburbs, parks, gardens, you'll find robins and you'll hear them most of the year round. So I think for me, it was this paradox that although we feel we know the robin very well, actually it leaves it leads a life quite different from the one we think it does. Like all creatures, it needs to survive, it needs to reproduce. And robins are like the film star James Dean, they live fast and die young. And a typical robin is lucky if it makes it past the Christmas after it was born. And a robin that lives for more than two years is an old and experienced robin. So for me, I wanted to sort of juxtapose the the image of the robin that we have on Christmas cards and, and, and as this lovely little friendly bird that comes to see us. And the bird that has, a, I suppose, a slightly darker side and, for me, a much more fascinating side. Yeah, because I, I um, realised reading the book there were so many mythologies that I kind of assumed about the robin that, that weren't true. And um, I, I can be mistaken because it, it sounds like there's always been mythology around the robin. So the Aristotle, was it, who thought that... Um, it was a different kind of bird that flew in in the summer. That's Greece, right. Yeah, and it flew out as the robin. Was That's that... right. He thought that red starts, which were a summer, are a summer visitor to Britain and Europe and Greece in those days and still now, and then of course migrate to Africa. He, when they disappeared, he assumed they turned into robins, which isn't as silly as it sounds because they've both got red on them, and I think. They're both from the same family. And I think, you know, it's natural to assume some birds do molt and have a completely different plumage in winter from summer. So I think he was just assuming that. He got a lot right, but but that one he got pretty badly wrong. <laughs> um, the robin's also the first bird that we ever fed since Surf of Fife in the 6th century. Fed a robin and hand-tamed it. And his fellow trainee monks were so jealous that they killed it. And then a friend of his brought it back to life. So, so that's a rather lovely story <laughs> as well. Naturally, of course, you know. Um... Yeah, so there's a lot of mythology. Robins appear more in literature than I expected them to. Um, Wordsworth writes about them. That's right. Well, we all know know that Wordsworth wrote about the Skylark and Keats wrote about the Nightingale and Shakespeare did. You know, we we sort of know about those two species because they're covered in so much of literature. Actually, the robin, I would say, has probably more mentions in literature than either of those. But they're not as... They're a bit more prosaic. They're not as... um, famous I suppose um, but you know the robins are in Enid Blyton and Thomas Hardy and Wordsworth and, Jay, and two of the Bronte sisters I think not Charlotte uh, you know and Shakespeare and Chaucer and you know they're, they're mentioned a lot and of course stories like Babes in the Wood and the rhyme Who Killed Cock Robin you know it centres in that as well. Yeah that's amazing. Um, the, the association with robins and Christmas I think is quite interesting as well because you point out that they're one of the less like excuse the pun, but flighty birds, they stay around all year. That's right, yeah. So they stay around, and in winter, of course, because they they feed on the ground and they eat a lot of insects and grubs and invertebrates. When you get snowy and icy weather, which, of course, now we don't so much, but at Christmas we used to, when I was a kid we used to, they can't find food. So they would come to the doorstep and sort of stand there, hopefully, and cock their head on one side, and they've got that lovely beady black eye, which, of course, is only because... Robins start feeding earlier and finish feeding later, so they need the eye to be able to see better. But again, we love that lovely look. Um, And so they became associated with Christmas. And whether it was because of that or whether it's just a coincidence, in the 1840s, the first postman in the Penny Post wore red uniforms. And the Royal Mail still has red on its vans, doesn't it? And the red was their colour and they were nicknamed 
robins. And then someone had the bright idea of producing cards to send to people at Christmas, because there hadn't been any before that, because there was no post. And they put in some of the first cards, they had a robin on it, sometimes carrying the letter in its beak, I suppose, representing the postman. Uh, and so robins have been associated with Christmas, and probably next week we'll get the first Christmas card, and it will have a robin on it. It's, it's kind of like the ultimate marketing plan, isn't it? They've kind of inadvertently done for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> They've endeared themselves to us and probably guarantee their, guarantee their survival. That's a very interesting <laughs> thought, and they are doing very well, actually. Well, one, yeah. one of the strange things about robins, of course, is if you go on the continent, and I was in Spain recently, they are a fairly... They're not a scarce bird. They're found everywhere, but they're basically a woodland bird. And they walk around the forest floor and they follow the wild boars. And the wild boars dig up the earth and they take the earthworms. Until recently, there hadn't been wild boars in Britain for 500 years. And one of the theories is that because there were no wild boars, they followed people. They then became tamer. And then when we started gardening, probably about 100 years ago or so, they would follow gardeners. And every gardener knows that a robin will sit on their spade Um, as they turn over the soil and again they think it's being friendly it's not being friendly it's being hungry and clever (laughs) and it just picks up the worms you know so this is what I mean about the robins this sort of image and reality are so they're not completely different because robins are tame but they're not tame because of us they're tame because they take advantage of us there's a lovely story in the book about my friend Hugh Warwick and Hugh is Mr Hedgehog and at one point he was trying to convince someone I think it was Andrew Lack, who's a scientist who's written about the robin, whose father was the great robin scientist. And Hugh and Andrew had an argument as to whether robins and hedgehogs were more interesting. And Andrew said, well, you can hand tame robins. So Hugh said, can't do that. And so he tried and he succeeded. And then he writes a lovely quote which I put in the book where he says something along the lines of, one day I was falling asleep in in our um, conservatory and a a, um, robin hopped in next to me and looked at me expectantly and I gave it food and then he realised that it wasn't he who trained the robin, it was the robin who trained him, which I thought was lovely. (laughs) I like that. Reverse psychology exactly. of the robin. Exactly. So what what can we what can we learn from the robin and, and why should we get more of them in our lives? You must see them in your garden all the time. I do, and I hear them all the time. And I I mean they come in they come you know, throughout the year, and I mentioned this in the book, a lot of the book was written about the robins in my garden because they're one of the commonest birds. I live in Somerset, I have a lovely big garden, and I work in our garden. I have an office there. And in summer, I have the door open. And this summer, um, just after I finished the book, actually, um, we, our new puppy, Rosie, lovely red fox Labrador, decided to chase a baby robin, and it chased it into my office, and it was about to grab it when I managed to catch the slightly flustered robin and release it in the next door garden. And luckily, Rosie hasn't caught any since. Um, so, yeah, I get these encounters all the time. You get the, the babies. Um, as I got up early this morning, as I left, I heard a robin singing, you know, because they do sing all year round, very unusually amongst birds. Only wrens do a bit now, but most birds don't sing all year round, and robins do, because, again, they hold a territory. Um, but you said earlier, and it's true that many robins are very sedentary, but some of our robins leave our gardens in winter, particularly the females, because they're a little bit smaller, and they head over to France. And some of the robins in your garden in winter will have come from Scandinavia. Oh, wow. Particularly if you live in the east of England, because they fly across and they find new territories. So, you know, again, they're more complex than they appear. Yeah. They're seeking that hygge life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cosiness. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for speaking to us, Stephen. Not at all, no, a pleasure. Well, I hope, yeah. hope you enjoy the book. I hope other people do. It's, it is, you know, someone's described it as a Christmas stocking filler, and, and I suppose it is, but I hope there's much more to it than that because I've, you know, managed to trawl through an awful lot of literature, both creative poetry, prose, and also scientific literature, and I owe a lot to the people who spent a lot more time than I have observing Robin. So it's really, it's not just my observations, it's, it's the whole Robin in science and culture. Robins are for life, not just for Christmas. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's the lesson we'll take away. <laughs> That's a great one, I'll remember that. That is all for this episode of the Vintage Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And if you want more updates about exciting new releases, you can follow us at Vintage Books on Twitter. Until next time.